0: We deal with questions all of the time in our lives about identity. It's a recurring challenge, I, I believe, for most of us to try to figure out, now, who am I really, and what's the point of my life, and what does that mean about what I'm supposed to do, and where I'm supposed to go, and the kinds of decisions that I'm supposed to make in my life. And there are lots of opportunities for us to answer that question of identity in, uh, in very different ways, Lots of competing ways for us to define ourselves than perhaps around the central part of our life if we confess to be Christians around Jesus. So Peter is writing this epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2 will be where we are spending our time together this evening in God's word. And Peter's writing this epistle to the churches in the northern part of Asia Minor that are spread around in a hostile world, in a hostile environment. And the questions that, uh, that we face every day about who am I and what am I supposed to do and uh, what gives meaning and coherence to my life are the very questions that would have plagued and certainly uh, rang loud and clear in the hearts of, the, follower, of the, the followers of Jesus to whom Peter is writing. In a world that, again, is hostile to who they are as followers of Jesus and um, is not an easy place for them To be professing this faith in Jesus. Now you have to remember too that back then they didn't have 2,000 years of Christian history. And theology and tradition undergirding their life in Christ. They were actually just, they were the the kind of adventurers. They were the the people on the frontier. So Peter's writing to encourage people. uh, And to to deeply root them in this newfound life that they have in Jesus. So we're going to come to this question tonight. ...in 1 Peter 2, 4-10... through 10, ...and ask, what, what do we gain from this text... ...about our identity in Jesus... ...as the people of God? And the first thing that we see right off the bat in verse 4... ...is this phrase, as you come to him. As you come to him, a living stone... ...rejected by men, but in the sight of God... ...chosen and precious. The first thing that I want to put to you this evening... ...about your identity is that as the people of God we are defined by people as people who come to Jesus who flock to him who who move to him and that this becomes the very central thing in our life Jesus is referred to in verse 4 as the living stone we're in the season of Easter tide this is a time of resurrection a time of celebration for the church as we remember that God raised Jesus from the dead And that resurrection is found here in verse 4 that he was a living stone rejected by men. That is the crucifixion. He was cast off, pushed aside, said to be a phony and a fake, and they put him on the cross. But chosen and precious in God's sight. Chosen and precious, as we know by virtue of the fact that he is now alive through the resurrection. So we come to this one who is alive and well, even though he's been rejected by the world, he's been vindicated by his father and he's alive. And we come to him. And when we come to him, we come in a way that is marked by faith and belief. We see that later in this text that he says, I'm laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This confession of belief and of faith that Jesus is Lord. Peter begins this letter in chapter 1 verse 3 and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This present day confession that Jesus is King and is Lord right now, today, and ruling. And that's the confession of faith that defines us. And as we come to him as people who confess him as Lord, as raised from the dead, all of these things happen in us. And these are interspersed throughout this epistle of redemption, being set free from our bondage and slavery to sin, of forgiveness, that Jesus bore his sins in himself on the tree, he goes on to say at the end of chapter 2, of a rebirth to a living hope, that we've been born again to a living hope at the beginning of chapter 1, and of honor. As he says in verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, that we share in some way in the honor of the risen king, Jesus. These aren't just religious words for you and for me. These aren't just kind of ideas that you grew up with and sort of hear about and, and, uh, and they have this bit of religious content to them. But these are deeply treasured, deeply experienced realities For the people to whom Peter is writing. And for us today. That we truly have been set free. We truly have been forgiven. We truly have been born again. We've been made alive in Jesus in a very real way. And that this is our treasured and real experience. And if we skip ahead further in this section. We're looking at verses 4 through 10. He says that that we are the people whom God called out of darkness. Into his marvelous light. Just this last week, I was talking to my four-year-old son, Jameson, and this was news to me. He told me about a recurring dream that he's been having. Um, So please don't psychoanalyze my son based on what I'm about to say. But uh, he's had this dream of, um, of two doors, door number one and door number two. And behind one door is light, and behind the other door is darkness. And uh, he told me the experience of choosing the wrong door, um, and it, this apparently happens from time to time, and he ended up in the dark room and said that the door was locked. There was a door, but you couldn't get out. You were just stuck in the darkness. So, yeah, I'll be praying for some time to figure out the meaning behind this dream. But the, the, the picture works for us who are stuck in darkness, and the door really is locked, those of us in the human race who are stuck under the power and the dominion of sin and who don't have a way to get out on our own apart from Jesus coming and unlocking the door and paving a way that we could have life in him. And so that's what Peter tells these churches, that he's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, out of a world that's defined just by you and by what you want. Out of a world that's defined just by the culture and what the culture says is important and who are the haves and who are the have-nots. Into a world of marvelous light. These images of light and darkness have traditionally and always been understood as this place of death and of life. Of evil and sin and everything that goes with that in terms of the diminishment of who you are and who you were made to be as a man or woman in God's image. Over and against the light of God. Into which we have been brought by coming to this living stone, Jesus, the Lord over all things. And this life in Jesus is not fading with the fads of our culture. You know, you you live through these seasons when one thing is important and then all of a sudden it's no longer important. You wait 20 years and the clothes you had that you never got rid of are now in fashion again. And this is the kind of thing that Peter talks about at the end of chapter one. He says, All flesh is like grass. And all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But what? The word of the Lord remains forever. Those who have come to Jesus, this first mark of our identity as his people, we've come to the living stone. And we found that we've been connected to the thing of substance and reality in the world. To the one thing that will not change and that is true and is real and, and does ultimately lead to what it promises. This word of the Lord that stands forever. We've been connected to this word, the living word, Jesus, the living stone. And now have a substance and a rootedness to our lives and a direction and a shaping for our lives that we didn't ever have apart from him. And all of this, Peter says, happens by God's mercy. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy. If you find yourself tonight calling yourself a Christian. You are that by virtue of God's great mercy in your life. And grace in your life. By virtue of his call upon your life. We've entered this place of substance and of reality. And of life and of light. And we've come out of that place of mirage and of, 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 of lies. And of smoke and mirrors. Into something of substance. And that moves us then to the second thing. About our identity. So first we're those who've, been, who've come to Christ. And been made new. And as those who've come to the thing of substance. Then we read this amazing metaphor. We get it in verse 5. You yourselves like living stones. Are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Built up into a spiritual house. With Jesus the one true living stone as the cornerstone. Now we get this image of substance, don't we? Of of stone upon stone. A structure. That ultimately points us to the word temple. Spiritual house. He talks in verse 5 about being a holy priesthood. In verse 9 about being a royal priesthood. We're being built up with Jesus into a temple. So we think, okay, great, that's encouraging. So what does that really mean? What, what does this tell us? The temple was always the place where God dwelt on earth. The temple was the place where heaven and earth intersected. But Israel, who built the temple, Solomon built the temple, uh, Moses and, and uh the people of God built the tabernacle before the temple, which was a foreshadowing of the temple, they never thought that God was actually contained in the temple. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant, which is found in the Holy of Holies, was referred to as Yahweh's footstool, indicating there was no way that the God of the universe was ever going to be contained in the walls of that building. Or Solomon says, as he's dedicating the temple that he built, in Zion, in Jerusalem. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. God would never be contained in the temple. And so there was a view in Israel. A, a prophetic view of the temple. Looked forward to in the future. That God's presence would actually not just fill the holy of holies. But would one day spill out of the temple to fill all Jerusalem. And then to fill all of Israel, and then ultimately to fulfill all of the world. This presence of God that dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And we see that vision looked to in places like Isaiah 11, when it says that the knowledge of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That one day this presence of God, which was localized and contained, would be expanded beyond the borders of this building to fill the earth. In Revelation 21 and 22, that great vision at the end where he looks and he sees a city coming down and then he describes a temple where there is no sun or moon because there need be no light because the Lord himself is their light. This vision of God's presence spilling out over into the whole cosmos starts to happen in Jesus. The temple, the place where heaven and earth meet. Jesus, the place where heaven and earth meet. John 1.14 says that he tabernacled among us. Echoing back to this idea of temple and God dwelling with his people. In John 2, as we read tonight, as Sam read for us, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And what is he talking about? Not about the building, John tells us, but about his body. That now somehow in Jesus, the temple, what it signified of God's presence on earth, was now going to be fulfilled in Jesus. And now in Jesus as the the temple, Peter says that you're being grafted together with the living stone as living stones into a spiritual house, into a temple. Paul talks about this in 1st and 2nd Corinthians and calls the people of God the temple of God. And now that body of Jesus that we are, the people who are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit are that temple in the world, the place where heaven and earth actually intersect and collide. That's through you, if you've come to Christ the living stone and through me. And between today and the end when Revelation 21 and 22 will come about in full, when God's presence will be the light Of the new heavens and the new earth. We as the temple of God. Are to be the place through which the presence of God. Because a temple is defined most of all by the divine presence. Through which the presence of God is to expand throughout the earth. Through us. The people of God. We are his presence here and now. We are indwelt by him. Here and now. And his presence is to expand into Cambridge and Watertown and Jamaica Plain and Dorchester and Beverly and Back Bay. Through you. We are the temple. God is to expand in his world through us. And this brings us then to the third place, third point about our identity. Verse 5, we are a holy priesthood. Verse 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Holy nation. A people for his own possession. Why are these things being used? Why a holy priesthood in verse 5 and a royal priesthood in verse 9? This is connecting to something deep in the biblical witness. We go back to Genesis 1. And God gives to Adam and Eve. He gives to man and woman in Genesis 1. Sorry, Adam and Eve, Genesis 2. He gives to man and woman that he's made in his image. This This commission to go out and to subdue the earth. To have a kingly role and function. And he makes them in his image. That they might go out and multiply his image throughout the earth. Bear his image to the earth. That's a priestly role in God's creation. And so this kingly role and this priestly role. Are coming together here in 1 Peter 2. And talking about the purpose of humanity as those made in the image of God. Is to see God's presence expand Through his world, through you and through me. That's the way it was always meant to be. But sin came into the world and messed that up with Adam. So God started again with Israel. And what did we read in Exodus 19? After God had redeemed them and plucked them out of bondage. He brings them into Sinai and says. Now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Kingdom has royal connotations. And priests and a holy nation. So God starts again with Israel to send his presence into the world. But sin messes it up again. Enter Jesus. The true place where heaven and earth meet. And now his body. And that project which God began with Adam and Eve. Begin again with Israel. Begins again with Jesus. But this time we know that it's going to come to consummation. Because of the cross and the defeat of evil. And sin and death and hell. And because of the resurrection. And the clear, clear Sign that that is, that God is victorious and that his purposes will stand and come to pass. And so now we are those people, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, who are now called to see God's presence expand through us into his world. That is our vocation as the people of God. Who are we? We're those who've come to Jesus, the living stone. We're the temple who have been Knit together, stone upon stone, on the cornerstone, which is Jesus. And we are a kingdom of priests now called to bear faithful witness to Jesus. In word and in deed, verse 9. You are all of these things that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our job. It's to proclaim the excellencies. The word there really means the mighty deeds of God. The salvation. The salvific deeds of God. Which would be the cross and the resurrection of his son Jesus. In word to proclaim those to the world. So that through that faithful witness. God's presence would expand. And his boundaries would increase. And extend. Into all the earth. And it doesn't just happen in word. But if we go on in verses 11 and 12. He says live such good lives among the pagans. It happens indeed as well that we, as the new alive people of God in word and deed, are bearing faithful witness to Jesus. And a few final things about how this faithful witness takes place. As a holy people, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, again, sin ruined this before So he says in chapter 1 to the people, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That is, this vocation and this function as the people of God, to be a royal priesthood, doesn't actually work if our seeking after the world's things defines who we are. The opposite of holiness is sin. Sin is essentially finding life outside of the God alone who gives life. To become holy, to be a holy people is to enter into a larger place and space. Where life knows no bounds. Where God has space and a place to work in power through us. It's not just about a list of rules. We've domesticated holiness. Holiness is like a lion that roars and that has life and substance in all kinds of ways that leads us into new kinds of living. We bear faithful witness as the priesthood of God only by having a holy life. Only as those, secondly, who are fixed on him, to proclaim the excellencies of him, right? What is most of Twitter and Facebook about? You know, we live in a world, and you too, we live in a world of self-proclamation. A world where the good news is actually me and my accomplishments and my image and all that I can bear to the world. And yet these people who've been called to the living stone are defined by proclaiming someone else. Paul says this well in 2 Corinthians, for what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We don't... Participate as the priesthood of God in the act of self-promotion and self-proclamation that so typically defines our culture. But we proclaim the excellencies of the one who is our all in all and who will be all in all. And we do this lastly, we bear faithful witness at any cost. At any cost. Peter's writing to the church churches and they are suffering. They are suffering and he's encouraging them if you expand this in 1st Peter, he's encouraging them to take heart and to suffer for doing right in their world. To stand firm in Jesus whatever the cost may be because ultimately Peter says to them Jesus is worth it. He is everything. It's okay to let go of your life. If we look at Revelation, which has the same understanding of the, of the people of God as a kingdom of priests. We read that in Revelation 5. It says in Revelation 12 that the way that the church will conquer. It says they have conquered the devil by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Jesus sets the example of bearing faithful witness to the point of death. Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus says to those of us who follow him, take up your cross and follow me. We bear faithful witness in word and deed to see through this temple of the body of Christ. God's presence expand and increase and the boundaries extend even to the point of death. So who are you? What's the point of your life? And what does that mean for the decisions that you need to make tonight perhaps and this week? You're a living stone in the temple of the living God. Called to bear witness to him as part of a royal priesthood. To see his glory expand and grow throughout the earth even to the point of death. But you can't do any of this apart from the reality and the experience of Jesus as your life, as your Savior, as your Lord, as the one who's given you a joy inexpressible and glorious, who's given you a hope that's alive, who's ultimately called you out of the darkness of life on your own terms into the abundant light of the kingdom of God and all of the life and forgiveness that dwells there. This Jesus who is alive, is he alive to you? Alive in you? You're everything, you're all. As he is, then this vocation that you have and I have, that we have can be fulfilled and God can receive glory and many, many more can come from darkness to light.